I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's going to be shit though, isn't it? Yeah. Welcome to this week's Failed Critics podcast and a return to the corridor of praise where we're inducting John Carpenter this week. Um, also got a new release review of the Oscar-nominated Spotlight and um, the news and a quiz as well. I'm Steve Norman, joined by Owen Hughes. Hello. And returning for the first time in God knows how long, James Diamond. Hello. We did try and get Jerry McCauley back, but it's like that scene in X-Men First Class, where they try and get Wolverine and he's in the bar, and he's just like, no, fuck off. It was what almost was last... exactly like that. It was. <laughs> yeah, what was the last one you were on, James, with the exception of your excellent um, Bowie tribute? Or Bowie. Um, <laughs> Bowie, get it right. Uh, it was the TV special, actually, because I generally don't watch films anymore. No, it's not, it's not quite that bad. Uh, not quite that bad. No, I came on to the TV special. It was one you weren't on, I think, if I recall, Steve. So I've not spoken to you on here since probably the um, the awards show from the early 2015. Yes. So it's probably about a year. Yeah. 2014 awards, wasn't it? Yeah. There you go. Wow. It's a I long time, know. isn't it? But you do your I own know. podcast now and everything, don't you? Yeah, it's kind of when I can get around to that as well. <laughs> Life. Hey, life gets life, life finds life finds a way to quote Jurassic Park. It it, it does indeed. Yes, yeah, um, slightly out of yeah. context, but yeah. <laughs> I, I like to think it's more. Uh, I was too busy trying to work out uh, if I could do podcasts. I never stopped to think if I should do podcasts. <laughs> I think that's a more nice. appropriate Jurassic Park quote for me. But anyway, I, I was let's just, move on. I was just doing a, I was just doing a James as old as dinosaurs joke. Oh yeah, well yeah, there we go. <laughs> I'll never change. Don't, no. to. <laughs> Don't ever change, Steve. Yeah. Anyway, on to the quiz, where it's poised at one all. Owen is um, as far away from me at the moment as having to watch a Murder, She Wrote feature-length special. <laughs> There's one where she goes to Ireland and there's really bad Irish accents in it. I really want to make you watch that one. Please don't. <laughs> Just, please don't. This is me sincerely now, hands clutched together. Please. I don't want to watch anyway, it feature-length TV. Detectives. You two have gone feral in my absence. I can't believe it. Yeah. This used to be a this used to be a highfalutin kind of highbrow. <laughs> no, I never did. Sorry. Never. <laughs> anyway, uh, Owen's in the quiz chair. Uh, me versus James. James playing on Owen's behalf. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you're back, buddy. Yeah. yeah. And because this quizzing. Yeah, because this episode's um, John Carpenter, Corridor of Praise, 
I have themed the quiz around John Carpenter's career. So, <laughs> one of John Carpenter's most famous films is The Thing, which is a remake of a 1950s classic called The Thing from Another World. But, which other classic sci-fi movie was almost remade by Carpenter in the 1990s? Was it A, The Incredible Shrinking Man? Was it B, The Creature from the Black Lagoon? Or was it C, Forbidden Planet? I reckon Creature from the Black Lagoon. That's actually what I was going to say as well. Uh, can I do that? You can both go for the same answer. Yeah, yeah I'm going to say Black Lagoon. I think it's Black Lagoon as well. I don't know why. If we both keep going for the same answers, we have to hope Owen's got a tiebreaker and we know he's failed <laughs> on that before. Uh, have a tiebreaker. Yep. <laughs> uh, you're both correct. It's oh. the creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah. That one of it, just like the mo- it just seemed like the most iconic one out of those three that you yeah. would kind of try and remake if you were going to remake something. It's, it's very Carpenter-esque, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's a great film as well. Have I have you seen that? A long, long time um, ago. Possibly, I would like to say. Okay, there we go. I'll note it down in case I ever win this round of quizzes. Uh, okay, second question: Which iconic '80s film did he turn down the opportunity to direct? Was it A. Top Gun, James's favourite? Was it B. <laughs> Beverly Hills Cop, or was it C. Aliens? So I think this. I think this could be a trick. And I yeah, no, also... Aliens is the obvious one. Um, and I also so... think I don't know why. I also think I've heard something about him and Beverly Hills Cop. You've heard that. I'm going to go with Aliens just in case, but I think it might be Beverly Hills Cop. But I'm going to go with Aliens. I'm spreading the bets. I'm sure it's just one of them thing. You know, if if I was on some quiz show on the telly, you know, like how do you get to that answer? It's been like, well, I'm not sure I've heard. He it was before. good mates with Dan O'Bannon, and Dan O'Bannon did Alien from their work on Dark Star. So there's a kind of there's a logical route through to potentially carrying on Alien. So I'm going Aliens. See, I'm going Beverly Hills Cop. What number it was? B. Um, no, it was A. Top Gun. Oh no! Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That feels really uncarpeted. It's weird. <laughs> Yeah, I probably would have preferred it if it was uh, Kurt Russell instead of Cruz. What about both? Yeah, yeah. What? Kurt Russell. Is... Kurt Russell instead of Val Kilmer. Yeah. There you go. Kurt Russell in as uh, uh, as Iceman. Mm. Kurt Russell everywhere. And then <laughs> uh, and and a like a blood test and uh, and there's an alien taking over one of the planes. Much better. I'm all yeah. over that. Okay, so third question. Uh, who did he describe, who did John Carpenter describe as the greatest actor of their generation, bar none? Was it A, Kurt Russell? Kurt Russell. <laughs> was it B, Jamie Lee Curtis? Or was it C, Jeff Bridges? I'm going to go C, Jeff, Jeff Bridges. Bridges. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go Jeff Bridges. You're both correct. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, love to, I'd love it to have been Kurt Russell, don't get me wrong. Yeah. He's more of a movie star actor, isn't he? Than a... most, yeah. most handsome, yeah. most handsome actor he's ever worked with, maybe. He's definitely a, a carpenter muse, and he was a really big fan of Jamie Lee Curtis as well. So, <laughs> yeah, no, it could have feasibly been any of those, but there we go. Ooh, are we into tiebreaker territory then? Not quite. I've still I'm got two more. Oh, okay, I'm nearly there. <laughs> I'm panicking. Got the sweats. Um, okay, made on a budget of three hundred thousand dollars. How much did Halloween gross at the US box office? Was it A, $150 million? Was it B, 
$47 million, or C, $6 million? I think it's going to be... Steve, answer this one first, because I think I'm going to say it's... 150, 47, or 6. I think 150. I think it's one of the films that people would have been going to see everywhere. Like, they'd be going to them big old drive-in movie things they have there. If you go to the normal <laughs> cinemas, it's one of the things word the mouth. Have you seen? Because I used to go brilliant. to those, didn't I, Steve? Yeah, yeah. Pioneers, I, they, I believe. I think they look. I think they, your look, wagons, I, I think they look brilliant. I'd love to go they to one. Look, I think they look great. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I'll go 150. I'm okay. going with 47 million then. And James takes the lead. Yes. Yeah, 47 million at the time, which would be 150 million now, apparently. Oh. So we're both right then, really. <laughs> no way. If you want to go to a Stuart's <laughs> but in inquiry, another very different way, I'm now <laughs> um, Okay, so what distant future was Escape from New York set in? Was it A, 1997? Was it B, 2001? Was it C, 2016? Again, I, I think I know this one, so I'll let Steve go first. I don't want to I tip don't, my hand. I, I don't know this one. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to say 2001 because that's like what they all did. Uh, right, go 2001 or 2000. They would have thought 2016. It's quite. Oh, but Back to the Future kind of deal, I suppose. Isn't it? Oh, 2001. 2001. James. Uh, I'm going to say 1997. And James has won. Yes. Yeah, 1997. I like. I like the logic that you started out with this quiz. Like d- deciding between aliens and Beverly C- Hills Cop, yeah. working out why, and then we descended to with Escape from New York. Steve just going because that's when they all did it, two thousand one. Going back to my cold hard knowledge. Yes, there you go, Owen. That one's for you, son. Thank you. Excellent. Oh. We're a step closer <laughs> to avoid a murder. She wrote. Come <laughs> on, oh. well, you want Owen to watch bad films, don't you? I kind of, I kind of want you to watch more of the cinematic classics. That, to me, that's far more entertaining. Do you reckon? Should I just start up a long list of like getting Steve to watch D.W. Griffiths films and all those old? <laughs> oh, have you not made him watch *Birth of a Nation* yet? No, not yet. That's, clear, that's clearly the choice. <laughs> See, I like the some three-hour racist yeah. epic. <laughs> yeah, don't. Um, yeah, let's not watch that with my girlfriend. Um. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> or just even worse for her to just come in and see you watching it. Yeah. <laughs> the climactic clan coming to the rescue and scenes. Yeah, I think it might be a relationship end of that one. <laughs> um, anyway, on to the news and the um, Screen Actors Guild Awards have taken place and we have some winners from both the small screen and the silver screen. The... Um, Recipient, this is how they call it on the uh, on their website. The recipient of outstanding performance by a cast in a motion picture was Spotlight, Absolutely. which is our new release review. Fully deserved. Well, I mean, the, the, the rivals for it were Beast of No Nation, obviously a Netflix film, uh, The Big Short, which I've not seen yet, Straight Out of Compton, which I have seen and thought was great, but not as good as Spotlight and Trumbo, which I don't really know too much about, if I'm honest. I'm looking forward to Trumbo. Mainly because uh, people keep going on and on and on about Brian Cranston in it. Mm. It's a good-looking um, cast as well. Uh, not just like attractive, but 
Well, I was going to say Louis C.K. is there. That's not quite yeah. John Goodman. You might have uh, slightly but, different definitions of Goodman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's a decent cast. Uh, Spotlight's the only one of those I've seen because I've been living in a cave for the last year uh, and barely seen any of the um, Academy and likewise nominated films. But what I would say is what I saw of Spotlight, yeah, it deserves an award. So... Yeah, <laughs> no arguments from me about giving Spotlight that award. Because uh, yeah. it is a cracking cast performance. There's not a weak spot among them. And yeah. And yet none of them are individually nominated for outstanding but, performance. But, I, but, I, but yeah. I think that's fair because cause when I saw that, I noticed that as well. And I thought, well, that, that seems to me to be quite fair. There's no one in Spotlight who I think would be outstanding or I think that as an individual or I think they should be up for an award as an individual because they were amazing oh, but, as, but as, a, as a cast as a whole yeah. as a collective they were excellent but i wouldn't say oh mark ruffalo should be up for best actor or, or something like that because i don't think he was as good as, as some other performances i genuinely thought he he was I excellent ruffalo I, was amazing uh, it was yeah. one it's probably his best performance i loved him in um so in uh yeah zodiac he was in wasn't zodiac, he and yeah, yeah. he yeah. was fantastic in zodiac and in fact, pretty much everything I've seen him in, Foxcatcher, he was the best one by a mile in that. He was unfortunate to be overlooked because everyone was going, oh, what an amazing performance from Carell. And, it's the and... uh, it's the Hollywood plastic nose syndrome, isn't it? Like yeah. Like Nicole Kidman in the hours and stuff like that. Stick a plastic nose on and people <laughs> take... I think also it's... part of that was people were, were shocked but because it was a surprise yeah. to see them be so good. And it meant yeah. that Mark Ruffalo, who you expect to be good, was overshadowed. Yeah. Unfairly, when he was clearly the best actor in. I'd, I'd also he, say, I he think... seems to be quite, so he seems to be quite underrated um, as an actor in general. I think not by like perhaps uh, the awards Experts people, like or but <laughs> yeah, but like you know, but like the general the, the general cinema going public don't kind of see him as this kind of star lead actor. Wait until um, he gets his own Hulk movie, then then things will well, change. Look what happened to Robert Downey Jr. Look at how he took off with. A lead. Well, there's been there's been there's been kind of news on Thor three, which is going to be like a um, Hulk Thor buddy movie. Apparently, (laughs) I'm all over that. (laughs) That sounds amazing. As long as it's actually like a, it's got a road trip and everything. I'm all over that. No, apparently it has. Apparently it's like a amazing Hulk Hulk Thor road. (laughs) I've always said there still needs to just be a Thor like comedy where he's just adapting to life on Earth. Yeah, because the scenes yeah. of that in like Thor just is brilliant. Fish out of water, fish out yeah. of water comedy. Yeah, totally. it's not even a bad guy. It's just a comedy like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's no like massive. It's just him trying to boil his best friend's wedding or something like that. You know, <laughs> yeah, just kind of klutzy romantic that's, comedy with Thor. Yeah. That's all it. That's all amazing. it needs. That's all it needs. There Steve you go. Put paid her again. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, I did. Sorry, I did think um, Stanley Tucci could have, uh, even though. <laughs> it just shows how how out of how unprepared I am for actually reviewing films again after being let back in. You're not gonna have me back for a while again. <laughs> I, I spent all the film thinking it was David Strathairn and then <laughs> got home because he's got hair. <laughs> got home and then went, Oh fuck, it was Stanley Tucci. Because <laughs> I, I I was genuinely like thinking, Yeah, I, I always love David Strathairn. He's always brilliant in everything he's in. That's like you fucking idiots. But yeah, Stanley Tucci was so good he made me think he was David Strathairn. So <laughs> clearly deserving of the your idea. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I've done the same. I watched Shine with James Woods in it. Mm. And for the whole film, the young 
kid who plays the younger version of James Woods, who make, probably makes up about 80% of that role, I spent the whole time thinking it was Ben Mendelsohn. And I commented to the guy afterwards who put on the screening of it. I was like, Ben Mendelsohn was really good, wasn't he, when he was younger? And he's like, yeah, yeah, he was. <laughs> Bastard didn't tell me. Apropos of nothing. <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, uh, best, um, best oh, outstanding performance by a male actor in a leading role. Brian Cranston for Trumbo, Johnny Depp for Black Mass, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio for Revenant, Mark Fassbender for Steve Jobs, and Eddie Redmayne for The Danish Girl, which was won by Leonardo DiCaprio. It's going to be he's his year. His... Yeah. yeah, he's finally going to get his Oscar. I've not seen was... it. Uh... It, it, it's, it's, it's epic, isn't it? It's, it's... Mm. Is, it, is, it, um, is, is he getting this because it was such a pain in the ass to film, though? Is, it, is, <laughs> it, is this one of those where it might not be the best performance of the year, but he put himself through hell, so we kind of better give him an Oscar for it? Well, is he, there an he element? Didn't get, he didn't actually get attacked by a bear. So, okay. I mean, <laughs> how hard can it have been? Well, <laughs> He did nearly die. He nearly died whilst making that film. Rushed yeah, off. Fassbender has had to play Steve Jobs, and Steve Jobs just seems like he's un- insufferable, or was insufferable. <laughs> so I mean, that must have been quite tough yeah. to play someone like that. Harrison Ford broke his leg doing Star Wars. They didn't give him an Oscar, well, did they? No. no. <laughs> um, be- uh, outstanding performance by a female actor in a leading role was between Kate Blanchett for Carol, Brie Larson for Room, Helen Mirren for Woman in Gold. Um, What's the name Ronan, whose first name I can never pronounce in Brooklyn? Sersha. I can Sersha. never do it. I always want to say something <laughs> different, and it's not. And Sarah Silverman, and I smile back. Um, I've not seen many of these. Not that many of them have been kind of released near me. Rooms, uh, if they've been released. Yeah, but Room, Brie room. Larson, won, Brie Larson won it I'm for really Room, and yeah. uh, I've not seen any of the other films. But purely based on seeing Room, yeah, there's no way she doesn't deserve that. Well, I thought Kate Blanchett was fantastic in Carol. When I saw that, I came out of the cinema thinking, yeah, she's just like one of these modern actresses who just possesses this this screen presence. And then I saw Room and I was like, oh, fuck Kate Blanchett. Brie Larson just absolutely nails Room all the that's way through. A, Every emotional that, beat is just That's, that's the title of the podcast, isn't it? Fuck Kate Blanchett. This is all our titles are going to be from now on. Fuck Noel Edmonds. Fuck Kate Blanchett. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yes, but I didn't see Helen Mirren in Woman in Gold, but Tony reviewed it last week, week before. Uh, Week before, wasn't it? And, you know, I don't know if that's just because she's Helen Mirren that's got her into that category. There's a few like that over the years, isn't there? Um yeah, Judy Dench has had a few Judy mm. Dench nominations. Uh, I thought Maggie uh, Meryl, Stre- there, Meryl but... Streep, who is amazing, you know, you know, yeah. amazing actress, but she's had a few. Well, it's Meryl Streep in a kind of big, high-profile drama. She's going to get nominated, and yeah, no, I think you. Yeah, I've not seen it, but at the same time, it wouldn't surprise me if that's that's yeah. something that's happened there. We're just going yeah. on to outstanding performance then in a, by a female actor in a supporting role because that is where Her- Helen Mirren is for Trumbo, mm. which is different. Two films, two different mm. films. She could pick up both. Well, she could have picked up both, but she didn't pick yeah. up either. Uh, this... uh, oh, and yeah, uh, this... McAdams at least got a, a nomination there for Spotlight. Yeah. Um, as the only female person in Spotlight, pretty much. Yep. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, Alicia Vikander won outstanding performance by a female actor in a supporting role for a Danish girl. Um, there were so many better options or alternatives. Yeah, it was just that... such a it was such a bland film for for something tackling a, a subject in a story like that. Yeah, that's, I mean that's that's yeah. what my problem with it was. It was just it, it's for I mean forget the whole issue of should they have had Eddie Redmayne playing a transgender person and all that bollocks mm. or no bollocks. <laughs> don't laugh at that one. But you know, it, for, 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 the, for a film tackling a subject matter like that on a story like that with characters like that, it was just bland. Mm-hmm. It was I've, terrible. I've heard that from a number of people. And actually, weirdly, um, uh, director of Carol, Todd Haynes, um, just just from what I've seen and heard about, uh, you know, uh, the Danish girl, I, Todd Haynes would have been a far more brilliant director because I'm really, really big fan of Todd Haynes. I'm gutted I've not got to see Carol yet, um, but he seems like he would have been a far more kind of awesome choice for that that kind of thing. Because, like you say, it's a really important story and a really in- potentially a really interesting one. And if it's just been kind of dealt with in a really bland way, that's really, really disappointing. Mm. It was uh, really bland. Um, outstanding performance by a male actor in a supporting role uh, was between Christian Bell for The Big Short, Idris Elba for Beasts of No Nation, Mark Rylance for Bridges Spies, Michael Shannon for 99 Homes, and Jacob Tremblay for Room. And it went to Idris Elba for Beasts of No Nation, the Netflix movie, which is which is big because obviously it's a Netflix movie winning a, a mm-hmm. big award. Mm. Yeah. I think that is the big story to come out of this. Yeah, um, yeah. and of course he's black, you know, with the mm-hmm. Oscars and everything as well. Yeah, yeah. You, can't, you can't. It's you can't help but see that as a little bit of a a nudge back at the Oscars, uh, especially after. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I honestly, honestly think so. Uh, especially with a few actors in the last few weeks who've come out with less than wise um, saying that. Mm basically black people should just be patient and stuff like that <laughs> who is vetting these I, I, re- <laughs> I, I did terrifying read, I, I did read somewhere um, somebody went back looked at the last 20 years of uh, Oscar nominations mm. and they did this doesn't this doesn't really mean anything in the grand scheme of things but statistically mm. worked out based on um, the amount something like the amount of um, black people in America the amount of black people um, in roles in films. Statistically, and the amount of Oscar winners mm. um, that were that were black, statistically there was nothing, it was incom- It was comparable with how many black people there are in America, you know, yeah. that's a, but, then they also went on to make a point like that, but Hispanic people are far more underrepresented and nobody makes any mm. deal about that and it's just all got a bit, it's just all a bit, they are being up, underrepresented. You can't really see why certain people haven't been nominated above other people. It doesn't make sense. It's a bigger debate than what Bell Critics are going to be able to solve. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think, and yeah, it's important to remember it's not really about black actors, but it's about non-white actors, I think, is the big issue that yeah. people have. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, but at the same, I can't help but feel that even if it wasn't a kind of deliberate point back at the oscars i think it was a timely thing to say um mm-hmm. you know 
especially when it is basically old white people who are moaning about reverse racism and stuff like that and yeah i don't want to say don't want to be one of those check your oh, no, but yeah. check your privilege for fuck's sake you know? <laughs> um, and, but the, the point you made about netflix is really important because obviously orange is the new black picked up a load of awards mm. including well, an award for a, a black female actress so yeah yeah it's so going to go on to the tv awards mm. we do cover television on here obviously um outstanding performance by an ensemble in a drama series um could have been mad men could have been house of cards could have been homeland or game of thrones but it went to downton abbey oh. does it make you proud to be british no really really no. doesn't <laughs> well I mean, done there but it's really not my cup i mean of tea, look so. at the, the other four i'm not the biggest fan of game i like game of thrones i watch game of thrones i don't think it's this amazing tv show that everyone it has, it's not full of amazing but, acting performances no it's about, definitely it's, it's about it's, the narrative it's, yeah it, it but it's by far and away better than downton yeah mad out of those mad men is the one with the best acting performances in my opinion uh particularly as an ensemble there I've not seen Homeland for a few years, but if there's anything like season one, then I've still I've not quite got any idea why it's there. House of Cards is very, very good, but out of those, yeah. Never mind. Move on. <laughs> um Outstanding performance by an ensemble in a comedy series. Um went to Orange is the New Black, obviously as you mentioned a Netflix show, which was up against the Big Bang Theory, Key and Peel, Modern Family, Transparent and Veep. Of those I've only seen any of the Big Bang Theory because it's on E4 every single bloody moment of the live long day. <laughs> Don't and... have to watch it, Steve. <laughs> and, mo- and Modern Family, which um, I haven't seen much of the last season, uh, the most recent season or seasons, but I think Modern Family's fantastic. Um, I've Modern never fa- seen or so Veep's fantastic. And, and I think last time I was on this podcast, I was extolling the virtues of Veep uh, in the TV special, saying it's the best comedy on TV at the moment. What's interesting about this is um, the Emmys have said that if you're over 30 minutes long, you're not allowed to be a comedy series anymore. Um, so Orange is the New Black won't be nominated for best comedy series at the Emmys. It's been shoehorned into drama um, because the Emmys have said if you're over 30 minutes, then you can't be a comedy. But what's quite interesting what? is the SAGs have gone again. Screw you. We're going to do it as a comedy and actually we're going to give them the award. Well, it makes no what, sense, does it? To... What, what was the like justification for you can't be a comedy over 30 minutes? Do you know? Because that's a idea. really like, like, arbitrary figure. To it is a really, over, really it? weird thing. And I don't know. I, part of me, I, I, I honestly, no one seemed to explain it. It was a rule change at the last Emmys. Um, part of me can't help thinking that maybe it was traditional TV's mm. response to the fact that their comedies are 30 minutes you know netflix and amazon prime uh and hbo can do whatever the hell they like and maybe they just didn't like that because you heard recently uh i think it was nbc were kind of saying haha they were poking fun at netflix and they were trying to start up a bit of war between proper tv and netflix and they're trying to make out that nbc is still proper tv and netflix isn't and so i think there's still a little bit of that and maybe the emmys carried on that but it's a ridiculous rule because Orange is New Black. Yeah, it's it, well, it's a it's a dramedy, isn't it? But yeah, yeah, it, it, but it's funny. Um, so I've got no issue with that at all. I've struggled to get into the third season of Orange is the New Black. It's we started watching the first few episodes and I've kind of lost a bit of um, 
love for it. Not because oh, I think okay. it's bad. I just don't think it's quite the same level as the last mm. season was. And so, it, uh, yeah, I just haven't kept up with it. So I'm, so, I'm I am surprised to see it pick up a outstanding performance. And again, part of me kind of can't help but think maybe this that maybe there's more to it than just the quality of the show and that it's a very you know you've got a transgender actor in there uh you've got a lot of um women uh women of color in there so maybe that you know Mm -hmm. maybe there is an element of that going on but at the same time they're they're really really good and the the important thing to remember is that the, the screen actors guild awards are purely about the acting and not necessarily about the show yeah, you know, it's not about the the writing and that. So if they are rewarding it for the performances in the show rather than the show as a whole. So maybe that's part of the reason. I don't know because that you know there's a load of great performances in Orange Is the New Black. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, definitely. So maybe that's it. So yeah, so maybe that that's where it comes from. Uh, I, I don't know, but yeah, personally, I would have liked to see Veep win it, but that's just me. I, mean, I don't think we want to go through all the actors for TV and. Yeah. Um, Although uh, um, Viola Davis had to get away with murder, uh, a, a lead female actress who's black who won an award as well, and there, there is definitely a theme going on. And Jeffrey Tambor for Transparent as well, so uh, portraying a transgender actor. So the SAGs were definitely kind of Hollywood liberal at its most grandstanding. Well, yeah, Idris Elba so, for Luther as well. And Idris Elba for Luther, uh, which is um, you know picking up two himself, uh, which is fantastic. Did you see the most recent Luther? I did. I enjoyed it. No, I've not seen it yet. Oh, I I enjoyed it. it. I think Luther's great. I noticed Grace of Monaco still being nominated. Nicole Kidman got nominated for Grace of Monaco. How is that still on the awards nominations trail? (laughs) That's unbelievable. (laughs) But beaten by Queen Latifah, I guess. Female (laughs) woman of colour. What what can I say? And Mad that's, Max won a stunt ensemble, which was amazing. Well, that's that's what I wanted to talk about. That was even an award. The whole well, film is stunt ensemble. I'm glad it is as well. It's re- uh, yeah, that 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 is, and um, they've also got stunt ensemble in comedy or drama series as well, which Game of Thrones won. Um, but it's one of those things that the Oscars is lagging behind everyone else in. It, yeah, in appreciating the stunt cast. You know, it's one yeah. of those things that we uh, even back when you were on the podcast, I think maybe two or three years I ago. I, remember, I think I remember us having. A we were talking about something Jason Statham said in the news about mm. how stuntmen aren't given any recognition for the yeah. stuff. He says people see him jumping out of a window and think it's him doing it, but it's just a guy in a ball cap. And that guy yeah. gets no recognition for that. Yeah. So it's, it's it's pretty impressive, actually, to see that here they do recognise them. The actors yeah. the actors Although, are actually saying thank you to these the, guys. These are artists who should be recognised, totally. Although yeah. what would have been awesome is if um, Mission Impossible had won and Tom Cruise had turned <laughs> up to accept the uh, the the award for stunt ensemble that would have been amazing in, yeah. a, in an alternative <laughs> universe that's what happened hmm. our only new release uh, review for this week is spotlight the um oscar nominated biographical drama directed by Tom McCarthy starring um, the likes of Mark Ruffalo, Michael Keaton, Rachel McAdams, Stanley Tucci, James, Lee Schreiber. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's about the um, investigative journalism um, of the Boston Globe spotlight team into child abuse by priests in the, um, in the Boston area. Um, 
So we've all seen it. Mm-hmm. What do we all think of it? Deserving of its Oscar nomination and various other awards and nominations. I think it is one of the best films that I have ever seen. I can't as far as that, genuinely ever seen. Ever seen. Probably, yeah. Yeah. I think there's only a, like a handful of films that I've given a full five out of five stars to on Letterboxd. I might give this one five. What what else has got your five out of five on Letterboxd? <laughs> um, <laughs> Apocalypse Now has got five out of five. Uh, Passion of Joan of Arc has got five out of five. Jur- uh, Jurassic Park has got five out of five, I believe. Deserved I think that's a perfect yeah. adventure film. Um, the Night of the Living Dead film. And wow. Dead. Yeah, I think they're both. And Day of the Dead, I've given all those fives, but they're like more personal favourites. I think yeah. there's flaws in those. But yeah, I, I gave Fast Five five out of five. So. <laughs> but, <laughs> That's uh, one of those five out of fives. That's why yeah. we kicked you off of this podcast. <laughs> exactly. I get. That's why I became a teacher. I, you know, I give out top marks like candy. The kids must absolutely love it when I give their homework back. And yeah, that was great. Great stuff. I'm far too easy to please. <laughs> don't even don't even ask them to show they're working, do you? No, no, that's good. What you like, Vin Diesel? Awesome. There you go. Right? So, <laughs> uh, no. Just give me the I answer. Do actually... I don't care how you find it. I do actually run a filmmaking activity at school on the Wednesday afternoons when, like, uh, when all the sporty kids are off playing sport. I've kind of cornered a group of people who don't play sport, and we now make films and stuff like that, which is quite cool, actually. Uh, Why were you in my school when I was? I, I know, I know, I, I, yeah. and I play video games with them on a Wednesday night as well. I'm, I'm, I'm basically as long as I'm the cool teacher, I'm kind of happy about that. <laughs> It's a anyway, nice spotlight. Yeah. Spot- yeah, spotlight. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So yeah, so Owen says it's it's one of his be- favorite films of all time. James, your your opinion? I do you know what I really really enjoyed it. It was um, it was it was a slow burner. Uh, it felt like an old fashioned film in the best possible way. Mm-hmm. Um, had the the kind of pacing and the gravitas of something like All the President's Men, um, uh, or the conversation those brilliant 70s uh thrillers uh and there wasn't really um which argo had a few years ago as well but then argo had like these big moments of massive tension and this didn't have like big build-ups of excitement and tension it's just people doing their job and it's really weird yeah i I was just gonna say it felt like it was a bit old-fashioned it was it it was set in two it felt almost like it was set in the 1970s because hardly anyone used the internet in it and it was it's really weird it's like set in 2001 2002 and they're having to like get clips sent up from the uh uh from the uh archives downstairs (laughs) and people are using landline phones and and it you think actually it wasn't that long ago that we it's weird it feels very very much out of time but it was it was like 15 years ago, but it feels a lifetime away. I mean, I, I was trying to think back because it, it's a film about a subject that this isn't to downplay, obviously, the, the, the what mm. happened to the, the people and the victims, because obviously it is a big scandal. It is a big problem. People do deserve to be punished and brought to justice. And obviously it was important that they investigated this. But the subject matter, if you just said oh, it was a film about some journalists investigating abuse by priests in the church, you think, well, that's not actually that interesting a, a topic. And it was a film either last year or the year before that was nominated for, for an Oscar, I think. And I can't remember for the life of what it was, but I thought the same thing. That's a Philomena, pretty boring subject. 
Uh, no, it, was, it wasn't Philomena, but it was, you know, this, this film's about uh, not a similar subject, but again, like a, a quite a, on face value, boring and uninteresting subject. But you watch the film and it's brilliant. And I can't remember for the life of me what film it is, but it was the same kind of thing. You, you read the synopsis, you think that doesn't sound that interesting. You watch it and you think, no bloody hell, that is interesting. That's great. That's that's mm. you know, it's such a good film with solid performances from every well, great performances from everybody in it. Um, and just the way it's, it's put together, it really gets you into the investigation of, of what they're doing, how they're doing it, the the roadblocks put up by them, by the church, and by, not just by the church, but people who consider themselves to be Catholic, to be religious, mm. don't want to upset the church, even though what they're doing is wrong, or people that they know and care yeah. about have been wrong, mm-hmm. they're, still, they're still putting up these blocks to, to protect the church. It did a great job of kind of showing how the church just casts that shadow over the whole of a, a, a city like Boston. And they talk about it in the film, talk about it, um, you know, being a small town. Yeah, it's this huge city, but mm-hmm. talk about it still being a small, you know, the Boston Globe still being a kind of almost a local newspaper. And there were some lovely scenes where uh, the journalists are out kind of pounding shoe leather and stuff like that, talking to people. And I just, you know, some nice touches of they're talking to people and there's just huge cathedrals just in the back of almost every shot, just, you know, know, some people might say that's quite blatant, but I just, you know, it was really, you know, these big ornate cathedrals completely overshadowing the whole of this city. Mm. Um, um, And and there was one line in there and, you know, my previous job used to be in areas uh, like this. I used to work in safeguarding. And and it's true, not just of this particular scandal, but of any kind of, um, scandal of its ilk, you know, looking at things that happen at the BBC, things that happen in this country up in Rochdale, and things like that. Um, when they're saying, you know, it takes a, a village to raise a child, it also takes a mm. village to abuse a child. And the idea that it wasn't just the church doing wrong, it was, yeah, yeah, the, the old adage that uh, all it takes for evil to flourish is for good people to do nothing. Uh, uh, and that really comes across here, but not in a judgmental way. It, you know, it, it kind of it doesn't point the finger necessarily at the people who did wrong uh, in an accusing way. It just holds a mirror up to the culture and society that allowed that to happen. And, you know, without going into spoilers, you know, certain characters that you are growing close to, you suddenly realise that uh, they're actually quite complicit in this as well. And through almost, not through no fault of their own, but, you know, they were part of the problem at the time as well. Mm. It's Yeah, but it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because... As it goes on, it's not really. A, um, how do I put it? it you, you're developing the story. It develops the story as it goes along, obviously. Mm. So each bit becomes more integral to the next. But there's, there's just like, as the case builds, the, the story accelerates, and yes. more things are brought into it. Um, it has a real sense of momentum. Yeah, but it's, I... it's, it's, it's like you, you are constantly trying to. Not even keep up with it, but try and stay with it because yeah. the more information you get, and it gets a little bit overwhelming at times, and you're getting all these names, and you're trying to remember what that guy was supposed to have done, and whether that guy is the same as that guy, and yeah. you know, it it gives you all this information, but you it doesn't really matter about some of the tiny little intricacies of that that stuff. It's all about the the feeling, and you're. Mm. You're trying to get a, an impression of the city and an impression of because it's a yes. very historical place, Boston. Mm. In America, yeah, you know, part of Massachusetts is is like one. You know, it was it the uh, George Washington and 
John Hancock and all them like they signed the the. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. It's, yeah so it's, it's, it's you're right. It's completely steeped in history. You know the the whole history of America. You could kind of trace a line through Boston, kind of thing. Yeah. 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 So it brings it all. It, it kind of like um sits there in the background. This like domineering presence of the city. And there aren't many films. I mean, it's gonna. Be, this is a really poor comparison to make, but something like the Batman films, where it builds Gotham as a character, right? Mm. This does a similar thing with Boston in mm. that Boston is this place, and these are just the people who are in it. Yeah, Boston is this thing, and it. Which actually, it, um, uh, I, I thought Ben Affleck did really well with the town. Um, a few years ago, I don't know if you've seen the town. Completely different side of Boston. But again, it was yeah. That was a film that really used Boston um, as a character in its film, uh, mm. and it does seem to be one of those cities where you can, you know, New York has been yeah. You can do New York. You can do that with L.A. There's a few. There's not many though, but Boston is definitely one of. And the film does it really well, mm-hmm. and it does feel like quite a small town. Um, yeah, it was only on a few of the shots. Where they show you like the the kind of vista that you realise yeah, Boston's huge. It, yeah. it feels like small town America in a huge amount of this film, and that just goes to show you how how kind of well they got that message across. I think. Sure. The, and the also, was... one of the things that it tries to do as well is like um, with the small victories that they keep getting, mm. and they're really pleased with what they've got. And then it comes back to Liev Schreiber's character who is the Jew, a Jew, who's taken over this newspaper in a very Catholic city. And so, of course, he's constantly trying to go for the bigger story. He wants the system to be called rather than individuals. What I think, though, is um, Liev Schreiber sells that really well. Mm. um, It's the quietest Liev Schreiber performance Mm. I've ever seen. Uh, Really unstated. It reminded me of Gary Oldman in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Uh, He's kind of... He's so passive. He's so quiet. So, but I, I, again, I think it's a really brave performance because, and, and actually, I know this happened throughout most of the cast as well. But it was really, really predominant with him. There, it is really understated. There's no showy performances. I think the showiness, the most showy thing, is Mark Ruffalo's kind of constant chewing. Yeah, you know, which is clearly, <laughs> you know, he's decided <laughs> that's what his character does, but it, it, it's sold in a really believable way. But that's the most kind of acting that you see in the whole film. And the rest of it is, just feels so understated and naturalistic. Even um, Michael Keaton. Yes. Who, yes. You know, Michael this Keaton is one actually just, you yeah. could have thought of that about. I've never back. seen Michael Keaton like this before. And again, it was really good to see. Um, and so, yeah, you had a few kind of speeches from Stanley Tucci. Um, and Mark Ruffalo's chewing. Those were the only real bits of kind of traditional movie acting that I recognised there, and the rest of it was just really good character portrayals. Mm-hmm. There, there was only one minor thing that, that irritated me. It happened a couple of times. There were a couple of scenes where there sometimes be a kind of a voiceover bit in the background, or one of the characters. One where. Um, Rachel McAdams' character walks out of a house and thinks she's been trying to interview somebody um, or speak to somebody, a victim, who doesn't want to talk to her, completely shuts her out. And then, like, two kids ride by on a bike, on bikes, and she, like, looks at them and says, oh, right, it's about, this is about kids being abused, and it could be anyone. And then there's another scene, I think it's just after Mark Ruffalo's rushing from one place to another with some documents or whatever, and then it, like, focuses on a dad pushing, or assume it's a dad pushing a child on a swing, 
And it's, it's like those couple of bits like that were just a bit heavy handed. And that's the only thing that irks me about the film. Everything else I thought was, was spot on. But those just bits, it's like, this film doesn't really need heavy handed bits like that. We know what the film's about. You don't need to kind of. I don't know like if, if I thought they were heavy handed, really. I think that they were quite poignant in, and placed really well within the film. I kind of still feel the overriding feeling after walking out of the cinema was it was just a a masterpiece. And I, particularly because at the minute, I've mentioned a couple of times I'm studying journalism. So when I was watching it, it was inspiring to the point that I'm still trying to decide what I want to do with my future. And I'm watching this going, fuck me, if this is what journalists do, this is what I want to do. And I know that's ridiculous because... There'll, there'll be a lot of... <laughs> you're going to write yeah. for heat, Owen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There'll be country life. If, country you, if, you, if you want to get there, there'll be a lot of uh, having a dildo shoved in your face on transfer deadline day. Exactly. And, and, <laughs> and, and doing reports on, on local news car crashes. But it's like, this is the film for this generation that those in the 70s had with all the president's yeah. men, you know. It, it's that film which captures the good that can be done in this industry yeah. I felt. but you know that's a personal bias as well which is probably why it's been bumped up to a five star review for me <laughs> so I'm now to open the doors on our corridor of praise and induct another member into that illustrious history um, with Danny Dyer binding the door <laughs> <laughs> just calling people slices and um, threatening people and having Ian Bill Danny Dyer is basically like the Blackburn Rovers of the Corridor Praise in a couple of months time we could be saying he's the Leicester City of the uh, Corridor of Praise <laughs> And him, him and Jamie Vardy are definitely on the same wavelength with chat shit get banged. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm hoping it's Danny Dyer who plays Jamie Vardy in the mooted film, not Louis Tomlin's One Direction. I could, I could also imagine them both having a similar kind of party where um, two certain things are, are bought in. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> your friend Charlie. Yeah. Bring your friend Charlie to this party. It's going to be yeah. really good. <laughs> Anyway, uh, yes, John Carpenter, um, the famous horror director, is now being inducted into our corridor of praise. Um, The person behind films like Escape from New York, The Thing, Halloween, and many others too. Um, I'm guessing, as as we're all on this podcast where he's being inducted, we're all big fans of his work. Well, what happened was I injected Owen uh, with a poison in his neck and said, if you don't let me induct John Carpenter onto this corridor praise, he's going to die in the next 22 hours. Uh, and as Owen hasn't seen Escape from New York, that reference is completely That's gone over my head. <laughs> <laughs> no, basically, I said, yeah, do John Carpenter and I'll come back for a corridor praise because I'm a huge, huge fan. And so I leapt at the opportunity to get well, James it was a, it was even a quiet... if it meant inducting John Carpenter. It was a a quiet week. It wasn't a lot on. (laughs) I'm easily persuaded on this. Danny Dyer was just through the sheer force of Paul, just uh, trying to get him into the corridor of praise. Carpenter's in there now. I know. Remember when we started with like a really long retrospective of Stanley Kubrick? (laughs) Kubrick and Harrison Ford and (laughs) Studio Ghibli. And now look. (laughs) 
<laughs> Although, yeah, John Carpenter, he's he's not on Danny Dyer's level. No, I uh, and I, I mean would... that as a positive thing for John Carpenter, obviously. <laughs> anyway, I wasn't trying to paint uh, Danny so... Dyer as some kind of genius. <laughs> so yes, um, uh, John Carpenter's career started back in the 1970s, really, um, with a film called Dark Star. Uh, mm-hmm. which he co-wrote with a guy called Dan O'Bannon, um, who was a, a writer on Alien. And, yeah, I think um, also some of the some of the stuff, like the effects work on Dark Star, inspired George Lucas, who hired um, O'Bannon, I think, to work on Star Wars as well for special effects. So Yeah, um, he hired a few people from Dark Star to work on uh, So on it's, it's obviously... It's obviously a well put together film, despite being a low budget in, in Carpenter's first film. So it's well constructed, well put together. I've not seen it myself, so um, I really it, like it. Owen, <laughs> not so much. <laughs> it's mm, it's like much. a stoner's dream, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Someone high on drugs just thought, "I wonder what it'd be like if there was a beach ball alien." I first saw it at college, and that kind of makes sense. Not that I ever okay. touched anything of that kind. You, you realise never but, inhaled. Yeah. Uh, no. Yeah, Bill Clinton. Yes. Yeah. Um. I yeah. I just I tried to watch it once, and I think that was when I was going to talk. I thought I'd talk about it on the podcast. Um. Years and years ago, and I made it halfway through, and I was like, I can't make it anymore. I can't stand to watch the stupid surfing hippies in space as it was, and I I quit. But I did go back to it. A few years later, thinking, oh, now I'm much more sophisticated. I watched all these extra films. I'm going to be able to get it this time. And I watched it, and I was like, this is just terrible. It's just an awful film. The idea that the George Lucas watched this and thought, those are the guys I want to get to work on my Star Wars project is ludicrous. I can't believe that. <laughs> get me the guy who put that man on a surfboard and going past Saturn. I want him. Just what? I think it was more. I think it was more for the uh, kind of the, the kind of rundown spaceship sets and stuff like that. And it was one of the one of those films that tried to show that it was it was quite it very the cynical seventies. Uh, tried to show that actually, if you were on a spaceship, kind of like millions of miles from home, it probably would be a bit crap and a bit boring, and you probably would go like out of your Dwarf. mind a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 I guess. Um, so. Yeah, and and yeah, and the uh, the the bomb that you know becomes self-aware and it decides to not take orders from anyone else, and it feels superior. There's there's an element of satire there, and there there, um, John Carpenter is quite a political filmmaker in many ways. Not not necessarily overtly political. Uh, I was watching an interview just before this. He was saying that his personality part of his personality is drawn to anti-heroes and outlaws and he himself said i have a major problem with authority um and you see that through a lot of his films you know assault and precinct 13 and other you know, escape from la and uh, uh and particularly you know they live and things like that he does have like a lot of filmmakers at the time he had things to say about society and they tended to in a way, quite similar to Romero, uh, you know, had you know, quite important points to say about society, made those points in some brilliantly well-made and conceived B-movies that hardly anyone saw at the time kind of thing. So <laughs> it, it's quite interesting. Um, yeah. You're uh, not going to win Dark me over Star- that easily. That's no, just no, a... <laughs> no. Dark Star, Dark Star is very much... It, it's, it's weird. To, I, I, 
I don't like it when people just say that old films are dated because you know some films like M for I know Steve watched M recently. Um, you know that's in the 1930s, and you could argue that that's dated, but actually it feels really fresh. Dark Star does feel dated and feels very much of its time, and it's one of those films that if you you need to look at it through the lens of the time to even begin to possibly enjoy it and even then you still might not and it's you know it's, it's for some people it isn't i i enjoy it but even i know that i'm kind of enjoying it as if i'd seen it in the 70s and if i saw it now then no it's not a good film uh, that kind of kicked off his career um <clears throat> and he, he kind of his early work he involved a few different types of film as a result on precinct 13 a TV the, the movie the best someone's... exploitation film 70s that one that uh, yeah, brilliant action film and you know pure uh, as a pure distillation of the exploitation genre of the 70s that's that's one of the ones for me uh there's someone's watching me it's a tv movie another tv movie called elvis which was released after halloween but was probably being made around the same time um have we seen much of his early work oh, i haven't myself but i don't know if any what else I've seen not seen it. Early. I kind of want to watch Elvis because it is yeah, the first thing we did for Kurt Russell, <laughs> hmm. um, and and I've heard really good things about Kurt Russell's Elvis as well uh, in, in that film. So and it, it's an early Kurt Russell performance as well, which yeah, gives it an, yeah, a layer of interest. Um, yeah, beyond that, I, I'm happy with Dark Star and Assault on Precinct Thirteen. Yeah, I did. I, I wouldn't mind seeing Elvis if it popped up somewhere, but. But yeah, I think you're coming on to his first big hit there, Steve. Mm. Well, yes, in, in uh, 1978, he released <laughs> Halloween, um, which started a, a run of films where you went Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York and The Thing, just four hits. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Hall- ha- um, Halloween was, was the first of those in 78 and kind of was is it not, you know, one of the most iconic uh, horror slasher films. Was it was yes. it the first film in the kind of slash genre? Was it out before the likes of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Nightmare on Elm Street, or were they all around? Um, it was before Nightmare time? on Elm Street. It was yeah. after Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I don't think you could class <clears throat> Texas Chainsaw Massacre necessarily as a slasher. That was more of a te- for me. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is kind of a, a sub- almost on its own. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah it's a uh, real outlier. Um, a psychological horror that one. Yeah, Halloween. Gruesome. Weirdly. Mm. I didn't Without Halloween, we wouldn't have a lot of the, the slasher movies we've had since, no, for, for oh, better no, totally. or worse. Totally. And the thing is, if you watch Halloween now, it feels really cliched. And that's just because it did all of these things first. You know, well, it, and, wasn't, and, and, it wasn't and that, a cliche when Halloween did them. Exactly. <laughs> and there, there weren't even films set at Halloween back then. This, this was a really new idea to set a horror film at Halloween. These days... Happen, you know, to every every other every other horror film. But they had, they did have a lot of slashers um, that were set around holidays. So the one yes. that inspired this was Black Christmas, yes. which is from seventy yes. four, I think seventy five, uh, maybe. Yeah, I believe so, yeah. And that's obviously set at Christmas in the early seventies. Um, you had the Giallos in Italy, <laughs> yes, play a huge yeah, of part course. in the slasher genre. Yeah, um, yeah, and that you know they uh, Carpenter took a lot of influence from the Giallos that he then kind of turned into. He made it into his own era. thing. Yes, you know, oh, totally. Like... Um, yeah, and I think um, something Kurt Russell said about him was he he had different timing, different framing, different style, and uh, 
I just watching an interview with Kurt Russell just now saying how some filmmakers go from kind of frame A to frame B to tell the story. They go from frame to frame to frame, whereas Kurt Russell will start in frame A and just slowly pan across. And then something will start happening off screen and then the camera will finally catch up with it. And he had a very, very different kind of time. And you, you get that in Halloween as well. The other thing I always remember, anyone who's ever studied Halloween, I studied it at college, I studied it at university as well. It's like, you know, if you're going to study horror, you study Halloween, essentially. Mm-hmm. And every single uh, lecturer I've ever spoken to has talked about it being a sexual allegory uh, because Jamie Lee Curtis's character refrains from sex and kind of like fights to the end. Everyone else who has sex dies. John Carpenter said it was never meant to be like that kind of bigger point. It was just that she wasn't having sex. Therefore, she was just like more aware of her surroundings and more likely to survive. (laughs) He never meant it to be teens shouldn't have sex because he's an anti-authority figure anyway. Um, But I always found that really interesting because I always bought into that. Yeah, it's this kind of like it's an allegory about virginity and things like that. No, it's just... Yeah, if you're too busy having sex, you're not going to notice a man in a William Shatner <laughs> mask come out of the wardrobe and stab you. So yeah, that's kind uh, of that, that's as basic as it got. Let's be fair; English teachers will find a fucking allegory in everything and ruin stuff <laughs> all like that. <laughs> and uh, what I love as well, just in how a few links to Psycho as well, just showing where you know where he's been influenced because. Apparently, one of the reasons he cast Jamie Lee Curtis is because her mum, uh, uh, Thingy Lee. I've just uh, had a complete blank now. Yeah. Yes. I can't remember her name now. Janet Lee. Janet Jan- Lee. Um, she was uh, she was the lead in Psycho. She's the one who gets killed in the shower. And also, he, um, Michael Myers is. Uh, psychiatrist is called Loomis and Loomis was the surname of the uh, guy that Janet Lee was having an affair with in Psycho and you know what I love I love I love directors who you know just happily pay homage to where they've stolen their influences from you know they're just nice and upfront about it um and the other great thing about Halloween is the soundtrack which is just you know this horribly it's the most doom-laden synth soundtrack I I can recall ever you you just listen to that away from the film and you just think something really bad is going to happen <laughs> right now and i'm terrified uh and yeah and jock carpenter pretty much scored the vast majority of his films what i say he wrote loads of them he directed them he did the music like dennis waterman did the theme tune and everything <laughs> like um but yeah it's brilliant he, he edited uh a lot of his films as well um He's a man of so many talents, but that's what happens when you make low-budget films is you just go, well, I better do that as well then because I don't have to pay anyone to do it. And it worked because Halloween is... I mean, probably as we go along, we'll each have a favourite of ours, but Halloween is like my favourite Carpenter movie. Mm. Understandably so. I, I get that. It's not quite there with me, but it is utterly, utterly brilliant. Um, next up for Carpenter was The Fog. Um, again, another kind of uh, creepy horror film um, mm. about a, is this a, a James, town. Is it based it, on a James Herbert book, or is it? Is this one based on a book, or is that The Mist? Oh, there's a load of. Oh, am I going? The Mist, into... is, the mist is the Stephen Garth King one. Yeah. Um, For some reason, I've got a feeling the fog was based on a book, but I might be completely wrong. So not according but... to its Wikipedia page, which no, is my Bible. Okay, there we go. So... I'm just thinking of all those '70s kind 
kind of horror films that were the something. Yeah, clearly. The, the James Herbert, the Stephen Kings and things like that. Um, uh, Jamie Curtis in it as well. I, th- I saw this a long, long time ago. And I'll be honest, I've never been hugely tempted to go back to it. But I don't know about you guys. I, I quite liked it, but I've just never got around to watching it again. I like the idea of it. I think it has um, sort of a seaside town that's a fishing town that's fishing community and then the ghosts that come back through there and i I liked it in terms of the atmosphere at least Mm. and uh of course his wife is then wife adrian yeah barbo barbo was in it and she was good you know she she played the part well but it's a little bit tame by comparison to Mm -hmm. some of his other yeah Okay. It's almost like a horror film you could introduce to kids, you know. Okay, oh, interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm struggling to remember. Apparently, it's the first first time he had to salvage a film that he wasn't really happy with, edited it, and had to go back and film other shots. And it, you know, it was he he. It's not one of his favourites, but he kind of considers it a minor classic, a minor horror classic. Which is not, it's not one of my favourite films, but it's still a minor horror classic. Which it's, is, it's, it's I quite it's, like that attitude. <laughs> It's perhaps both not as gory and not as tense as some of his other films. Yeah. Well, Halloween wasn't that gory. Halloween was a lot of it no. was in your head. Again, um, a bit like Psycho. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. And um, there's a really interesting thing I, I read about Halloween, which was that um, there's a slight, there's just this kind of glimpse where you see behind Michael Myers' mask in the film. And audiences at the time talked about how disfigured, you know, how disturbing <laughs> it was. Yeah. And it turned out, it was just the actor just with, a face, stage, <laughs> just with a bit of stage makeup to show yeah. the a slash from a cut where Jamie Lee Curtis had kind of defended herself. And he said, that just shows you the power of suggestion. They've seen this monster throughout the film and they've just seen a, just a glimpse of his face and just assumed almost that it was horrific. Uh, actually, it wasn't. <laughs> uh, yeah, and he does that with Halloween. It's very much... Um, yeah, it's it's more in the mind than it is just putting everything up on screen, which is, in a way, far more disturbing. Uh, and next up for, for Carpenter was um, Escape from New York, which was which was a bit of a move away from the horror films that he had been doing. He'd, he'd had the script since the early 70s, and they were asking him to make a, another film, and he said, well, will you have a read of this one? Um <laughs> And it's almost like a Western. Uh, it's like a Western in futuristic at the time, New York. It's the start of the real uh, John Carpenter, Kurt Russell bromance. Um, so Kurt Russell playing Snake Plissken. Um, it's Kurt Russell's favourite ever character. Uh, without without Snake Plissken, there's no Metal Gear Solid, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> it's such a direct rip-off. It's even called Solid Snake, for God's sake. Um, um, but John Carpenter kind of, uh, at one point, uh, the studio wanted to sue um, Konami and John Carpenter told him to leave it because he actually really liked the game, which is a really nice thing. Because he, um, he's a big fan of computer games, isn't he, Carpenter? He is. Yeah, yeah, huge fan. Um, so much so that the thing, um, the thing computer game in 2002, he says is canon because <laughs> basically it carries on from the end of the thing where one character is rescued, one character's left to die. He's gone, yeah, that's canon now. Uh, he, he's decided that that's, wow. and he narrated um, FEAR as well. So yeah, he's he he's always been quite into computer games as well, which is again shows his influence not just in the movie uh, industry. Um, but what yeah, the Escape from LA. You've got Kurt Russell being amazing. You have got Lee Van Cleef, 
utterly, utterly brilliant. He is perfect in that uh, as this kind of slimy military character. Harry Dean Stanton's in it. Donald Pleasance is in it. Um, it's got a lot. Oh, and um, Isaac Hayes as the Duke of New York. And it's just, <laughs> it, it's, um, if, do you know about it at all, Owen? Do you know much? Oh, about yeah. It? Yeah, I know yeah. a little bit. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, basically that, um, what was it called? Breakout a couple of years ago with um, Guy Pierce was mm. basically Escape from LA set in space. Um, it was filmed over eight blocks um, in St. Louis. And they, and I love stories of filmmaking in this time as well because everyone does everything without permits. So they just um, bought in an, an entire aircraft and cut it into three pieces um, at 3 a.m. in the morning in the middle of St. Louis. And then that was without permits and then just started filming the next day. That's awesome. Um, but Escape from LA was just, again, a brilliant, fun um, adventure story, but a, a Western shot in the future, but funny. And one thing Kurt Russell said about it is he read it on the script and when he saw the finished film, it was, it was exactly as he imagined it would be. <laughs> And that kind of, and again, he was saying that that's a real positive about John Carpenter. You knew exactly what you were getting from him. Read the script. It looked exactly like that. And it's a really, really good, fun film. Um, uh, yeah, I really recommend you getting uh, getting hold of it somewhere, Owen, and having a watch. That. Mm, I, I will, enjoy. yeah. And next up is, is my favourite John Carpenter film. And probably my, one of my favourite films John in Carpenter's that genre. Favorite. John Carpenter's well, favourite film of his own as well, Steve, so you've got good taste, go. and it's mine great as well. Mind, <laughs> great minds think, think alike. That is 1982's The Thing, which yeah. I just think is, is fantastic claustrophobic horror. Um, the the crew in the either Arctic or Antarctic, I can't remember which now. Um, uh, Antarctic. And it's... Um... It's it's routine. Any any, res- any scientists in the Antarctic on the on Midsummer's Night they have to watch the thing. It's become <laughs> part of Antarctic scientific community research, which is amazing. And um, I, I didn't even mind the. It wasn't a remake, was it? It was like a. It was a prequel, wasn't it? About the Swedish team that. Mm. Or oh, was that that mod one? Yeah, I didn't even. Mind I haven't that. seen I, that. that was, I haven't seen that. I thought I thought that was okay, but this one from eighty. This is just. I know it's, it, that itself was a remake, wasn't it? The thing. Yeah, yeah. the thing from another world. Yeah. Uh, Howard Hawks film, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Although I, it's I just... more, it's actually based on the the story that inspired the Howard Hawks film, and is a yeah. far more, um, it's uh, far more loyal to the original short story than the original film. If you see what I mean. Because aren't, aren't they sense. watching yeah. the the original thing from that, the other world? They are. Again, yeah. just that those little kind of things that they drop in there, <laughs> fantastic, yeah. But it, uh, it is just it is just brilliantly tense, isn't it? Because you haven't got a clue where hmm. the where the yeah. creature is the whole time, and it's just phenomenally. And, yeah. The the blood test scene in that film is just one of my <laughs> favourite scenes in film history ever it's so well acted it's so well shot the tension in there um but overall it's just a fantastic film the effects you know physical effects apparently carpenter experimented with some stop motion and said it looked terrible so uh, at one point they've got 50 puppeteers essentially working on the creature just to make it come to life and you know i love those real physical effects um yeah no it's just utterly awesome not a carpenter um score although if you didn't know that you might think is ennio morricone who carpenter basically 
kind of worked with and got him to try minimalistic synth um, soundtrack. So it's Ennio Morinoke, uh, uh, Marconi doing a John Carpenter impression, essentially, <laughs> which is just pretty awesome in itself. Yeah, that's it? amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, the thing's probably my fair. And I, I'd, I'd be demanding he be in the corridor praise, even if he just made the thing, in my opinion. <laughs> it's that good. Uh, next up, two two films back to back, eighty three, eighty four. Is Christine and Starman, two films that I'm not uh, too familiar with myself. I have just just before we started recording, I was watching Starman for the first time um, with Jeff Bridges as the the greatest actor of all time. Yeah, the greatest greatest actor of his generation, bar none. Yeah, yeah, yeah. bar none. Um, yeah as Starman, an alien. Basically what happens is the main character's husband's dead, an alien comes back, uses a bit of DNA and looks like her husband. And it's kind of like, it's just, so far I'm not buying it. <laughs> it's not, it, I don't know what it is. Is it, a, it's a sci-fi comedy, drama, thriller. I just don't really get what, it, what it's I've meant to I've never be. actually got around to watching it um, because it, it just seems completely outside the rest of his 80s output that I, I've almost got a blind spot there. I kind of don't yeah. really know it exists. I've never put, but it's his highest grossing film um, it, in, you know, kind of North America. Um, it, Jeff it's Bridges made... was nominated for an Academy yeah, Award. Yeah, was nominated but... for an Academy Award. Yeah. yeah, so it seems really, really out there. So I, I will get around to watching it at some point, but uh, no, I, I kind of, for me, the eighties continued on to probably the next two that Steve's going to mention. Uh, yes, the next two that I'm going to mention are obviously Big Trouble in Little China yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and Prince of Darkness. Big Trouble in Little China is is great, isn't it? He's back with Kurt yeah. Russell. Yeah, and. Yeah, and it, it's John Carpenter getting to make a martial arts film, which is, <laughs> you know, which is just like brilliant. <laughs> Let's see what he does with this. And it's it's cartoonish. It is bonkers. And again, the effects are that they're they're never amazing, but they they sell the story and they're they're done with charm. And it's utterly mental. <laughs> I watched it again last night and just was like. Yeah, this is as completely fucking bonkers as I remember, and it's great fun. And, and you get that with a lot of Carpenter's work is that it doesn't take itself too seriously. Um, it's fun and it's it's just great to look at. Um, and yeah, big trouble in Little China. The when I heard they were remaking it, I, I, my heart sank. And the only thing that make made it not completely sink was that they were at least going to cast Dwayne the Rock Johnson in the main part, and he's about the only person I could conceivably see starring in a half decent remake of Big Trouble in Little China. Even then, I'm still slightly concerned. But mm. yeah, I guess it's one of those films though that you think of as being quite 80s, but it defies the sort of stereotype of an 80s film mm. because it's just an homage to all the stuff that came before it, isn't it? Yes. It's yeah. not It's not about being 80s. It's about recognising what influenced films of that time. And that yeah. Yes, era. yeah. yeah. And, and and again, on the soundtrack, it's scored by Carpenter again, who said he hated all that. Whenever like anyone did a country film, they did all that plinky, plinky, bing, 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 yeah. bing. So he just did his usual synth with a bit of rock and roll in there as well, mm. which is fantastic. But the whole film is just rock and roll, isn't it? It's it just is. full on, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. And quickly, how about Prince of uh, Prince of Darkness? 
huge. It's eons since I've seen that. So I, I honestly, I wouldn't feel, I, I wouldn't feel confident to talk about it. Oh, and have you seen it more recently? No, I haven't. But oh. isn't it part of a trilogy of his? The Apocalypse trilogy with it is. the thing and something else that I've not actually seen. The mouth, of, like, the, the mouth, mouth of, of madness. madness. Yeah. yeah. The mouth of madness. Yeah, I haven't seen either yeah. of them actually, but um, yeah, I, can't, I don't really understand how they're part of the trilogy. I know it's a thematic trilogy. Uh, yeah. But they they seem like very different sorts of themes that run mm. through them. Um. But yeah, I mean, I don't I don't really know much about any of them, I, yeah. uh, for that matter. It seems to be a trilogy in in the same way that. Um... Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright done a Cornetto trilogy where the films aren't linked or thematically similar in any way. They're just films made by the same people. Edgar Wright, another kind of person who you can't help feeling has been moulded by the work of John Carpenter as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see a lot of John Carpenter in the work that he he does as well. I was thinking earlier, actually, if John Carpenter was around now, if he was emerging now, he'd have been given a Marvel or a Star Wars film. Uh, yeah, I almost kind of guarantee. Yeah, because they're being quite brave with their choices of directors, yeah, aren't they? Exactly. But... They, they, I think Marvel, you know, Marvel stroke Disney, they would have chosen John Carpenter, the John Carpenter of the early eighties. If he was doing that work now, they would have had him for one of those films. And then I couldn't help thinking of a John Carpenter Marvel film, and I think it would have been amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's not too late. Maybe it's. Yeah, it's not too late. Although, yeah, too, we'll come, we'll come on to late era competition. <laughs> well, I think we're, I think we're coming on to his, his late. Not work, quite. We've we? still, we've still got one bona fide classic to talk about, and that's They Live, mm. which is, you know, it's got Rowdy Roddy Piper yeah, with glasses that reveal all the uh, uh, subversive messages um, that aliens have been given us, and has one of the best fight scenes of all time in a film ever, which is just Freddie Roddy Piper and Keith David having an old man. Just a brawl with yeah. yeah. <laughs> No music and no. hardly any cuts. And it's just two men. It took them three weeks to choreograph that, apparently. It just looks like two men who've been kicked out of a pub. No way is that choreographed. <laughs> <laughs> three weeks. <laughs> but wow. they live... Is, is, Again, it's got that um, consumerist, uh, you know, anti-capitalist consumerist message yeah. going on, um, you know, about conformity and things like that. And it's just a really great film. And it has, uh, you know, the iconic line, um, which I'm going to ruin if I try and deliver it. But uh, uh, I... <laughs> someone else said, I, I, um, I came to chew gum. I came here to uh, chew gum and kick ass and I'm all out of gum, basically, yeah. uh, which is just an awesome line. Absolutely awesome. And I love They Live. Uh, But sadly, I think They Live is the last, certainly that I've seen, the last great John Carpenter film, which is a shame. He has a four-year break after They Live and comes back with Memoirs of an Invisible Man. uh, Which I've not seen, to be honest. No, I've not seen that one either. I haven't got much interest in seeing it either. (laughs) uh, it's It's a science fiction comedy starring Chevy Chase. (laughs) <laughs> now, well, now I'm sold. Now I'm sold. <laughs> now I'm sold. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the work does maybe not start a, a, a gradual decline, but it, it kind of isn't his peak anymore. He well, he so. he never really bought into the whole studio system, and 
at, at a certain point, if you haven't got the backing of the industry, you're going to be making your own little cottage films and um, Escape from L.A. bombed critically and financially. Um, uh, Ghost from Mars didn't do brilliantly. Um, although apparently he made a film, and it's on Netflix. Uh, no, it's on Amazon Prime, actually. Uh, apologies. Um, from 2010, he made a horror film, which was apparently a real kind of return return to form. Um, which I'm just having a look. That's the ward. Is... The ward, yes, that's the one. Uh, I I read a few good reviews of that. Um, so if you if you are of a, if you're someone who appreciates the horror genre, that might be. If you want to check out something in this later work, I've not seen it personally, but that seems to be the one that has been re- very mm. well received by people in that kind of area. But he didn't write that one, I don't think. That he didn't. Just no, the... he just directed that one. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, you're also in. in since 92 looking at his his remake in 95 of village of the damned and ghosts mm-hmm. of mars from 2001 which i think starred ice cube and jason statham mm-hmm. and natasha henstridge as well i think yeah i've not seen her in anything since that and uh sirens no was it no what was it called the one where she was an alien that kind of preyed on human beings and and pam mm-hmm. greer yeah. in ghost of mars oh god she is isn't she yeah so that's, yeah. um, she, I, I don't remember her. She's in it. I couldn't tell you who she is in it. Um, oh, she's team leader Helena Braddock. And she's murdered. I have no memory on. of her. <laughs> I, think, I think she's murdered relatively early on. Yeah, you're right. Uh, yeah, I think it's more of a cameo than a than a full part. Wow. Um, so, so yeah, obviously, uh, perhaps a potential return to form with award, but between. Um, making they live um and and the war there's not been a great deal of success or hits there has there no 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 and yeah do you know what that happens um mm-hmm. you know it happens with musicians it happens with writers you know there, there's a period of time where everything is just kind of in tune and uh, i think from the late 70s to late 80s he barely put a foot wrong and he did what he does very well um and, and yeah a really unique voice at the time and his films are all very yeah they, they all have a certain style but at the same time they're not you know the same over and over again yeah. and and for me the, the one of the biggest things he was a low budget filmmaker doing something interesting doing something a bit different um and his work will live on in all the other people that came afterwards who have been massively, massively influenced by him. And he was constantly trying to redefine who he was as well with his work. It's none of his films you could say are the same. Even if Halloween and The Thing are both kind of paranoid, they play in your paranoia and your fear of the unknown, they're still very different sorts of films. Yeah. I mean, I had... Yeah. Um, I always had it in my head that he did two of the Halloween films. I think there's ten Halloween movies in total. And I thought yeah. he did Halloween 3. I'm researching it for this. Apparently he he started writing it or he'd written most of it and then just left the project completely because yeah. they were really... they The studio didn't want him to make a Halloween film that wasn't with Michael Myers. Yeah, that was that's it. Didn't franchise. he produce Halloween 2 as well or something like that? He I, might I have had a hand in that, yeah. It. At yeah. one point, he was going to do Exorcist 3 as well, but he fell out with um, Blatty. Uh, well, not fell out. They just decided they didn't want to make the same film, so he decided yeah. not to, to not make it. And Blatty See, ended Exorcist, up directing that, I Exorcist think. 3 is a good example of a franchise that 
by the third film was something completely different. Mm. Because that was more of a mm. crime thriller with a supernatural yeah. element. I mean, yeah. But that's slightly off topic. But <laughs> um, yeah, I think he. I think what I get out of, out of him personally is sort of the inspiration side of it is that he was someone who wasn't prepared to. He wasn't prepared to settle as a particular mm. type of director. He didn't want to be the horror guy. Yeah. Even though he made films that you could probably a lot of his films you could probably describe as horror movies. He just he could he just have... made films he wanted to make. Yeah, he could have been a Wes Craven, and that's not to do down Wes Craven at all, because what he did in the horror genre was fantastic. Mm-hmm. But he was very comfortable making horror film after horror film and working in that genre almost predominantly. But no, you're right. John Carpenter went, yeah, at some point went, yeah, I want to make a martial arts film now. Yeah, I want to make <laughs> Escape make from New York. Yeah, I want exactly. to make Starman. Yeah. <laughs> I want to make yeah. They Live. You know. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. He's, um, you can certainly see why he has the cult status that he has. Yes. Even yeah. though loads of people recognise his, his name and his films. It's weird, uh, isn't it, to be bracketed as a cult director when everyone mm. can uh, you know, name a John Carpenter name two film. or three films they've yeah, seen. Yeah, the same. Exactly. Oh, the Halloween guy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's just, yeah, it's weird. So, so yes, um, anything else he wants to mention quickly about John Carpenter? When, when did you first discover John Carpenter, James? Um, it was uh, Escape from New York on a, when I was 12 on like a... Uh, over the summer holidays, one of my friends had taped it off of TV with a, a, a top-loading VHS uh, player. Nice. And I um, remember um, basically parent, his parents were kind of getting drunk in the dining room because he had a friend over and we just watched Escape from uh, New York. And just seeing this guy in ripped jeans uh, and a T-shirt and an eye patch. <laughs> Just kid, completely not giving a shit about anyone, uh, and that was as yeah. I watched that. And went, I want to grow up to be Snake Plissken. That <laughs> looks amazing. So he was one of my kind of early heroes. So it would have been that, and then and then when I watched um, Halloween at college, and started getting who he was as a filmmaker, that's what led me on to everything else that I watched. But yeah, it, it was that real kind of you know late night B movie those films you see with your friends that stick with you forever that yeah. was it was one of those moments for me um and to me that's the way john carpenter should first be discovered i hope that's how my kids first discovered john carpenter maybe when they're a little bit older than five uh but at some point oh when they're dancing daughter... in the other room getting drunk exactly. on hips getting to beers drunk... yeah exactly and, and <laughs> could they, be any night of the week they... it? <laughs> it could be yeah and they go on to itunes and notice that i bought it 10 years ago and like, <laughs> on there or something or however we're watching films then but yeah i hope that's how they first discovered john carpenter well i think that's um john carpenter inducted into the corridor of praise now my work is done officially i'll be back in a year (laughs) it's official uh he he is in there's no getting out he's trapped in there um it's 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 unescapable. The only the it only way like much of an honor. I think Steve's still reeling from the room. To be honest, the only the only way people can escape this is because the idea of the corridor of praise was to uh, nominate and induct people who haven't been um, um, given an Academy Award for the work that they're best known for, wasn't it? That was the original yeah, idea of it. it. So the only way people can get out of the corridor of praise is by winning an Oscar. Pretty much. Yeah. So if John Carpenter wins, 
yeah. If John Carpenter wins best director ever, if possible, yeah. we have to kick yeah. him out. He's not allowed well, in. Well, Ridley Scott's still going and getting nominations. I'm sure John Carpenter's got a few more in him. <laughs> yeah. um, but anyway, quickly, before before um, we go, we do what we always do, and our, our recommendations for the week ahead. I hope James has come prepared. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is it, then? Uh, uh, <laughs> do you know what? It's Big Trouble in Little China on Netflix. There you go. Nice. There you go. See, you come prepared. It's fine. Um, Owen, uh, on on BBC iPlayer at the minute, um, Storyville have a documentary called The Great Gangster Film Fraud, which is a documentary about a guy who basically tried to scam a load of tax money off the government um, by producing a film he claimed had a twenty million pound budget, but it didn't. It was made for like a hundred thousand pound. Um, in a basement and on the street and a bit of guerrilla filmmaking um, but it because it's about a British gangster film they talk to not Danny Dyer but Jonathan Sothcott the film producer who we had on the podcast for the um, the uh, yeah the Danny Dyer Corridor of Phrase episode so he features in it as a talking head and sort of gives his comment about the, the British film industry or lack thereof um, but it's actually it's a really interesting documentary to watch anyway. If you've got like an interest in how these films are composed, constructed, um, what goes into making a British gangster geezer movie, then it, it's actually quite an interesting, interesting film. So yeah, it's called uh, the Great Gangster Film Fraud, Storyville, BBC iPlayer. It's still available for twenty two days. Okay. And I'm going for ITV4 on Saturday night at 9 o'clock. Escape from New York is on. Oh, so, there you go. No excuse. No, yeah. no excuse at all. Um, right, Owen, next week we're reviewing the new Dad's Army film very possibly, yes. aren't we? <laughs> we are, yeah. Brian Plank is on for that episode. He's coming back. We, um, yeah, he originally was coming on to talk not just Dad's Army but Deadpool. And then Deadpool got pushed back a week. So now he's coming on to just talk about Dad's Army, which he's mm. thrilled about. We'll, we'll sing the theme tune. We can. We, that's all we can do, really, isn't it? We, you can. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to pre-record a theme tune, Steve, for next week, then by all means do it. <laughs> Come on, you know the theme tune to it. I do, but I'm not going to sing it now, ever. Wow, you've got, you've yeah. got a week to prepare. Yeah, we've also um, got yeah. um, Chris Wallace on the podcast as well. Chris is from uh, Wiki Shuffle. He's making his first solo appearance on Fail Critics. Yeah, so that's all to look forward to for next week. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, James, for returning. Oh, pleasure. You got anything and... to plug at the minute, James? Um, no. Any more Diamond and Human podcasts coming out? Go and have a look at diamondandhuman.co.uk. There's something there. I don't know. We (laughs) did our kind of, we did our best. Oh, I chose my favourite things about 2015, and Nathan chose his least favourite things about 2015, um, conforming to our stereotypes. Um, So I was all cheerful, and he was all miserable. It's quite. There's some good music on that one. Have a look at that. Download it. It's pretty good. I'm halfway through that on my commute, so I have snuck a few awesomes into this podcast. Nice, yeah. Just, <laughs> just in case, yeah. Yeah, I've got no issue with that, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, so that's all for this week, and hopefully you'll join us again next week for another adventure in film. 
The Failed Critics Podcast is presented by Steve Norman and Owen Hughes, created by James Diamond, with original music provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, remixed by James Yule of JamesYule.com. You can find us at FailedCritics.com, on Twitter at FailedCritics, and Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash FailedCritics. Thanks for listening. It sounds so enthusiastic when you say stuff. <laughs> Another adventure in film. <laughs> next week, I'll, ne- next week I'll go over the top of it. <laughs> I can't change how I enunciate the Asian. No, I know. It just <laughs> just always makes me laugh. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh yeah, so news, SAG yeah. Awards, pretty good. Uh, I think we can cover those in sort of brief. Yeah, uh, we don't have to do a death this week because Wogan doesn't really count for us. No. <laughs> yeah, phew. Thank God. Yeah. yeah. Another another death. Yeah. That's our life now, though. You realise that? I, I know I'm a bit older than you guys, but um, a bit. I was just saying to my friend, oh, shut up. <laughs> But it said that it makes me realise that now that's all that happens is people that I grew up kind of watching on TV and listening to. That's all they do now, just take turns to die until I die. That's <laughs> my life. <laughs> so you'll get there one day. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.